Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Welcome to this, the first Sunday in the season of Lent. The gospel passage that we just heard is the defining paradigm of our Lenten fast. We hear of Jesus fasting for 40 days, and during Lent, we fast for 40 days. What we're doing is participating in Jesus' example. But what we'll hear in just a little while is what Jesus was doing was not just a personal fast. He was doing something that was, uh, had been failed at in a much bigger um, community at a previous time. But when we hear this story, most of us, I think, probably immediately think of sort of personal spiritual temptation. This is a story about spiritual warfare. And when we hear those words, we think of me being tempted by the devil and trying to um, resist personal temptation. And that's clearly there. I mean, that's obviously what the story is about, right? The devil comes to Jesus, he's tempting him, and Jesus has to resist him resist these temptations. But the, the story of spiritual warfare as revealed in this uh, narrative is actually much broader and bigger than we might at first imagine. There's definitely that personal spiritual warfare aspect of it, but that's not all that's there. The context that a lot of first century Christians, Jewish Christians especially, would have been uh, ringing in their heads when they heard this story about Jesus would have been the context of Deuteronomy, when the people of Israel had finished their 40-year sojourn in the desert and were about to enter the promised land. But why were they in the desert for 40 years in the first place? When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he gave them a simple promise. Worship me only and I will take care of you. I will do amazing things for you, things that you can't even imagine, you tiny little group of people with your 12 tribes and, and you know, don't even have a homeland. You're barely a full nation. But I will do things for you that you can't possibly imagine if you reject all the gods that you knew of down in Egypt. By the way, the ones that I just defeated with my plagues. You know, the, the sun god, well, I cast darkness over the land. The the god of the river uh, Nile, uh, the same river that I turned into blood, and sent frogs and sent locusts to destroy the crops. Basically, I showed Egypt that all of their gods are completely powerless against me. Those were the gods that you grew up hearing about. But I'm telling you, I am the only god for you. Worship me only, and you will have my presence with you to bless and strengthen and multiply you forever and ever. And guess what? They barely made it a few days. Moses went up the mountain to receive uh, the covenant as promised by God, a handful of laws to help govern the people. And when he came back down the mountain, the people had already lapsed into idolatry. Because of the failure of the people, they were cursed to wander in the desert as a purge for 40 years to teach them only God is there to take care of them. They cannot survive 
on their own. They certainly can't live on bread alone. As they're about to starve in the wilderness, where does bread come from? From God, directly from the heavens. God gives them water. Where? From a well that was well-established? No, out of a dry rock. God had to teach them over a long period of time, these 40 years, that he and he alone is their life. And just as they are finishing this sojourn and about to enter the promised land, what happens in the book of Deuteronomy? The people are reminded of what God requires of them, that they do not live on bread alone, but by every word that lives on the, uh, the, every word that comes from the mouth of God, they are not to put their God to the test. And they are to worship him and him alone. All of these sayings that we hear Jesus Quote to the devil, these are scriptures that Jesus is quoting, and they all come from the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, chapters 6 and 8 specifically. So Jesus, in his mind, has the context of Deuteronomy, people about to enter back into the promised land. After what? A 40-year, or in his case, a 40-day sojourn in the desert. Why did he have to do this? He was reversing Israel's failure. They failed to worship God. They failed to learn the lessons from their 40 years in the desert. He, in 40 days, was able to completely give himself over to the trust of God, even when the devil himself comes to tempt him. So there's that context also. It's an important context to have in mind. But there's another dimension to this story that often goes overlooked. Both of those, I think, are the primary uh, things that we need to keep in mind. That yes, we have to personally resist temptation when it comes to us. Also, when we are walking in Lent, we're participating in what Jesus did. But here's this dimension also in the story. And this is one that uh, I don't know why, but I just feel like it is something that we today in this time and place now in this year need to have emphasized to us. And that is the overt spiritual dimension to this story. Now, I mentioned spiritual warfare, but this is more than just a personal um, resistance of temptation. This is a spiritual story. Listen to all the spirits named in this story. It begins with the Holy Spirit. He's named. Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. Then there's another spirit that's named called by three different names or titles, actually, in this story, the devil, diabolos in Greek, the tempter, and Satan, almost as a a proper noun. But that word, the Satan, the Satan, is a word that gets used in the Old Testament all the time. And it means a deceiver, a tempter, someone who puts up a barrier to block you, to send you off course. So this spirit, this being is a spiritual being, a bodiless spiritual being who comes and interacts with Jesus. And then at the end of the story, there's another spirit or spirits that are named. And these are the angels who come to minister to Jesus. It's easy to overlook this bald-faced spiritual reality in the story. Jesus, who, yes, is fully God, but also is a man, just like us, a human being, is out there in the desert interacting with these spiritual beings both of the loyal to God and of the rebellious against God kind. And that same world that we see in this story is the world we live in today. Just because this is a story 
of almost mythological character of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago in some desert that we couldn't point to on a map, it can seem unreal to our minds. But this is real. This is a real story about a real man in our real world. And if that's the case, what are the implications for us? All the propers for today's Mass, that is the, the introit chant that we sing, the gradual and the track that we just heard between the epistle reading and the gospel, and as we'll hear the, the offertory verse and the communion verse, all of them come from one source in the Bible today, and that is Psalm 91. It is the one scripture that Satan tried to misuse to tempt Jesus. It's funny. We see Satan say, hey, Jesus, you're hungry. Why don't you uh, do something unnatural? Why don't you go against the orders, uh, the, the stated uh, fast that you were assigning to yourself and make some bread out of these rocks? And Jesus, in response to him, did what? Quoted scripture. He didn't speak of his own. He didn't uh, give new teachings like we see him do in, uh, you know, on the Sermon on the Mount or anything like that. He just quotes scripture as it is, straight to the devil. And the devil, picking up on that cue, what does he do for his next temptation? He quotes scripture back to Jesus. And this is the scripture he chooses. Psalm 91, he says, Jesus, don't you know that you uh, will have angels given charge over you and they'll protect you so that you won't even dash your foot against the stone. Why don't you throw yourself off uh, the, the, the temple and uh, test that out? And so Jesus obviously quotes scripture back to the devil and defeats this misuse of scripture. But the church also today takes that scripture, Psalm 91, and triumphantly reclaims it, reclaims that psalm in its proper context today. That is, recitation in church. That's what the scriptures are really for. And this gradual, uh, it highlights the chant, highlights the one, or the couple verses rather, that the devil picks from that psalm to use. He will give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now, ironically, in this narrative, that's exactly what happens after Jesus thwarts the devil's temptation. Angels do come and minister to him. So why do you think the church is having us sing this verse today? Because angels are here with us today. I know we look around and see a pretty empty church building, and uh, there's a lot of precaution going on in the world, spacing and avoiding crowds, and all of that is very important um, but we do, I want to remind everyone, have uh, policies in place to mitigate the dangers, and uh, those are very simple to take advantage of. And if there's anything to fight for and work for in this time, it's your ability and chance to come to church and to commune with the body and blood of Christ. So please make every effort that you can to do that. It's not difficult um, to, to make that happen, so make the effort. And here's why. I said that angels are here with us. I read recently, just this week, a story from an Orthodox priest um, whose, whose blog I follow, uh, who seems very honest and trustworthy and sincere to me, and his wife 
had something happen to her uh, years ago. And he conveyed this story, actually let her write it out on his blog. And uh, he trusts her. I trust him. So I'm going to trust her story. What she described was being at church one day, singing in choir. And she was suddenly aware that there were angels all around her and everyone in the church building. She could see them. Sometimes their forms were easy to make out. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were in colors and shapes and, um, and, and things that she could recognize. Sometimes the colors, as she said, were beyond her comprehension. They were not colors of this world. She could also hear them. They were singing. She said their singing was beautiful and she could make out what they were singing sometimes and then sometimes she couldn't. It was, again, like the colors, a sound that was otherworldly, beyond the comprehension of human minds or the ability of human ears to distinguish or discern it. But this was an ongoing thing. She witnessed this ongoing during the liturgy. And even though she was the only one who was granted with the grace to see and hear that fully, others from the church independently told her that day that they also experienced something beyond the normal, that they heard what sounded like singing that was bigger than it should have been given the number of people there participating in the singing. This is a grace not given to all of us, but it's not one that should shock us as Christians if we believe everything that the Bible and the church tells us. But it is something I think nice to have confirmed, you know, even from a second or third hand source that you believe and trust. But what are the implications of this? It means that when we are in church, she didn't just see angels flying around and singing on their own. They were participating in the liturgy. They were matching the singing of the people. They were, their actions matched the liturgical actions of the service. The implications are that what we're doing here is participated in by heaven, or rather maybe mystically, when we are in the liturgy, we are participating in heaven's liturgy itself. And we make this clear in our liturgies. We actually anticipate and pray for and assume angels are with us, participating with us in worship and even fulfilling liturgical roles. In the Asperges um, that Father Benjamin did right before the mass began between the office and the mass, he sprinkles us with holy water, but what is the prayer that he reads? He says to God, vouchsafe to send thy holy angel from heaven to guard and cherish, to protect and visit and defend all who dwell in this holy place. On Ash Wednesday, this past Wednesday, at the blessing of ashes, the prayers do pray that God will set, uh, bless and sanctify the ashes, but they also pray this to God. Send thy holy angel from heaven to bless and sanctify these ashes. We ask that God will send his angels to bless and sanctify them as well. And then in the liturgy of St. Gregory, the ancient Latin liturgy, in the canon of the liturgy itself, this is after the consecration, after we uh, pray the words of Jesus at the, the night of his last supper, the institution narrative, it's after we ask the Holy Spirit to come upon the gifts, listen to what the priest also prays. We humbly beseech the Almighty God to command that these things be borne by the hands of thy holy angel, to thine altar on high, in the presence of thy divine majesty. 
We pray this after the consecrations to show that it is Jesus' sacrifice that we are offering. The bread and the wine are now the body and the blood of Christ, and the priest prays that an angel lift them up to heaven to show God, this is what we're offering you. It's your own son. We believe that angels are here with us when we worship, but not only here. Angels go with us as well. They are our community. And so we're never completely alone. When you feel alone, when you're the only flesh and blood person in a place or space, that doesn't mean that you are alone. That doesn't mean that there are just spiritual realities floating about. No, the angels of God are persons, okay? These are persons who are in community with us. The ones whose names we know well, Michael, Gabriel, we give them the name, the title of Saint, Holy. They're as much members of our church as anyone else. These angels are our community. And so spiritual warfare that we see in this um, story and that we know is the case for all of our lives is both personal and communal. It doesn't matter where we are. It's always both. C.S. Lewis gives a great analogy of ships sailing in a fleet to describe this interplay between how we are both persons in charge of ourselves, but also persons in community with others. He says, think of yourselves as ships in a fleet. You have personal responsibility to yourself. You have to make sure your inner workings are good, that your engine doesn't break down, that your rudder is right. Otherwise, you will not only be harmed in yourself, but you can fall out of the fleet. You can run into other boats. You can affect negatively those around you. And likewise, the, the fleet has to get where it's going without bumping into each other in order for the ships to even fulfill their purpose for being ships, that is to get from one place to another. So there's this duality between the personal responsibility, the individual life of each of us, and the communal reality that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and better yet, we're all members of one body. And Jesus' community is special in this way. We really see this in the church. Why? Because what's happening in this story is when a community messed up at Sinai in the desert and ever after, it took one individual, one man, Jesus Christ, the new true man, to fix what had gone awry in the community. A community had messed up and it took one to fix it. But now what happens is the legacy that we're all on our own doing the, the one thing each individually. No, that one man who fixed the community reestablishes the community within himself. You see how it goes? The many mess up and God narrows this community in his plans and purpose to the point of one woman who gives birth to one man. And in that one man, then all of the rest of the world is now invited to participate in his unique Christ life and become a new community. A new community he established to help spread that Christ life farther and farther out into the world. So our Linton struggle against sin, really our whole lives are simultaneously personal and communal. There's no such thing as just me and Jesus I grew up with a lot of that kind of 
spirituality, that idea growing up. Ironically, it was in the context of a community that I learned that spirituality, that it, you can just be, you know, you and Jesus. We didn't really have much theology of community or of the, the church, the body of Christ. It was much more individually focused. But I'm here to say that as widespread as that may be in our culture and time and place, even in American Christianity, that is absolutely wrong. Jesus did not come to create a system so that it could just be me and Jesus. Jesus came to establish a community, a body of which we are all members that work in concert with the others as part of his body, of himself. Because the, uh, the angels came to minister to him, we are now him. So they come to minister to us also. We really believe that in the church. How can we put that to the test? Not put God to the test, like the devil tried to do, but put our faith to the test. How can we prove to ourselves that we really have faith in what we say we do? Well, change the disposition of your heart. Keep your eyes open, literally, looking for angels. Be ready to see them, to hear them, to feel them and experience their presence. They can strengthen us, just like they did Jesus after his fast. If you don't already pray to your guardian angel, maybe take that practice up. You are Christ's, and so his angels come to you too. Be mindful this Lent of the reality all around you. Draw strength from the community, from Jesus' whole body as you work on your inner self. Never let your victories become too much your own, lest you fall to pride, but share them with the church. Never let your failings become too much your own lest you fall to despair, but bring them to the church in confession and draw strength from the church to keep you going. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.